Well, let's go ahead and get started this morning. Good morning, everybody. You guys are all spread out. You're making me move. You're going to make me move this morning. All right. Got a few here. Got a few over there. I'm sure we'll fill out. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to get started. And today, we're going to be jumping into Genesis to set the narrative context for Leviticus. So let's go ahead and pray, and uh, we'll jump in. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for um, just your kindness to us, new mercies this morning. Thank you for filling our lungs with breath and um, allowing us to come here to, to learn from your word. Um, during this hour, to hear your word proclaimed in the next hour. And I pray that you would be honored in our learning, in our listening, in my speaking, that, it, that, that the message of, of your word would become clear, that you would give us a, a more full and richer understanding of, of uh, your word, specifically Leviticus, um, even as we go through Genesis today. Um, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, by way of review, um, why should we study Leviticus? Just get a couple, couple answers to this. Why should we study Leviticus? Because it's in the Bible. Yep, yep. What else? Why study Leviticus? Okay, it shows us what God commanded of his people. And more generally, because we don't know it super well. We can know it better, right? So that's always a good reason to study something, especially when it's in the Bible, as Roman said. Um, what is the, so the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, um, which book is the center of the Pentateuch? Leviticus. And what's at the center of Leviticus? The Day of Atonement, right? The Day of Atonement. Um, Biblical theology we talked about is developing those themes within Scripture. We're, we're pulling out the theology that the Bible um, creates for us so that it comes up for us. Um, we're not systematizing. So systematic theology is we look at all the Bible as a whole, and then we say, okay, how does, what does the Bible say about this particular topic? And we're taking all of it, and we're systematizing it from, from the whole. Um, biblical theology is more seeing how the theology is developed throughout Scripture. And so we're going to start doing that today, which is going to be a lot of fun. Um, as I'm teaching, please be praying that we can get through all the material that we have today, because we're covering Genesis. Um, we're going to be spending most of our time in Genesis uh, 2 through 11. Do you guys remember the main theme that we stated last week that we said we're going to be proving over the next several weeks? The main theme of Leviticus or even the Pentateuch as a whole. Do you guys remember that? That's right, exactly. Exactly. So Yahweh is opening a way for humanity to dwell in the divine presence. So Yahweh is opening a way for humanity to dwell in the divine presence. And so we're going to begin to um, develop that and kind of prove that today. And so we're going to spend time in Genesis. If you guys have uh, your notes at the top here, I'll just read that paragraph for us. So now that we've established Leviticus within the structure of, of the Pentateuch, we're now going to develop the narrative context of the book. So in order to understand the context of Leviticus, or to understand what Leviticus is saying, we have to understand where it is in the narrative of Israel. This week we will see how Genesis presents the core problem humanity faces, broken communion with God, by overviewing the stories of Adam and Eve, Cain, Babel, and the patriarchs. Um, very broadly, very quickly, we will see that the story of Genesis is a story of humanity moving away from the life-giving presence of God and toward chaos and death. So what we're going to see is we're going to see humanity starting in life-giving, in the life-giving presence of God, and then it's going to end up 
in death thematically and kind of geographically throughout, um, throughout Genesis. So we're going to start in Genesis 1. Start in Genesis 1, and we're going to cover, so in your notes, um, there's some charts in there, but then you'll see kind of the major headings that we're going to hit. This is kind of like the skeleton layout of, of, of the categories we're going to be uh, walking through today. There's a little bit of space in there for you to jot down some notes if you'd like to take some notes. The charts are there just to kind of help organize these thoughts a little bit more clearly. And um, I'm also going to be listing things out if you guys want to take down some lists and stuff like that. All right, so that's um, just the basic way to use your notes today. <clears throat> so we're going to start with the idea that we were created to dwell in the house of God. So when we look at Genesis 1 to 2, we look at the Garden of Eden. Um, I think what the author of Genesis, what Moses wants us to get, is that the Garden, Eden, the cosmos in general, um, are God's dwelling place. That the, that the Bible sets up the cosmos and when God creates the world as kind of like this first tabernacle or this picture of a tabernacle. Um, so we're gonna do, what we're going to do first as we're developing this theme is we're going to compare the cosmos to the tabernacle. And this was actually a very common way of thinking of the cosmos. When I say the cosmos, I just mean the universe. Back in the ancient Near East, in their cultures, they saw the universe as this like cosmic temple, as a big temple, right? And they saw their temples in whatever false worship they were worship, they were, they were, they, whatever false worship system they had, as this kind of smaller picture of the cosmos. And the Bible actually kind of takes those themes and, and uses it in Genesis, I think, as well. So here's some comparisons. So in Genesis 1, verse 2, we see that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God, the Spirit is the same word that's used for wind of God. So that's, that's how we speak of it in Genesis 1-2. Let's go to Exodus 31-3, and we're going to draw a comparison to the tabernacle. So Exodus 31, verse 3. My pages are getting stuck together. <clears throat> it's, this is speaking of the construction of the, the tabernacle. Um, look at verse 1, back up to verse 1 for context. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called uh, by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. So how was the universe created in Genesis 1-2? by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is involved in the creation of the universe in Genesis 1-2. And also the Spirit of God is involved in the, in, in the creation or the building of the tabernacle in Exodus 31-3. Look down at Genesis 1, verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons. And for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. Now, that word that's used for lights there, the word that's used for lights is the word ma'or. And that word is also used throughout the Pentateuch um, primarily to refer to the lampstands that are within the tabernacle. So 135 times out of 160 times that it's used in the Pentateuch, that word is talking about the lampstands within 
the tabernacle. So we could also read this text as saying, or sounding like, um, and, and let there be lampstands or luminaries in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. All we're talking about here is that as God is constructing the universe, as he's creating in the first six days, he's using language that is reminiscent, that's going to call to mind tabernacle themes for the people of Israel, okay? Um, Elsewhere in the Bible, in Psalm 104, if we look at Psalm 104 real quick, Psalm 104, creation is talked about like a tent or a tabernacle that is pitched by God. And there's, a, there's several passages that we can look at. I think Psalm 104 is a very, pretty clear example. So Psalm 104. Psalm 104 verse 1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Right, so verse two, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Look at verse five. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. So the Bible speaks of creation as God's creating, as being set up, pitched up like a tent or like a building with foundations. So very, very... uh, Generally speaking, God is setting up a house. We can picture the universe as, as God's house that he's creating. Um, there's, a lot more that, there's a lot more comparisons, and you can see this chart down here in, in Exodus 39 to 40, comparing that with Genesis 1 to 2, just some language that is very similar between the two. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. That's for, uh, chapter 39, verse 43. And God saw that all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Chapter 1, or Genesis one thirty one, In Exodus, thus was completed all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. That's in Exodus 39. The heavens, in Genesis, the heavens and the earth were completed and all their array. That's Genesis 2, 1. In Exodus 40, you guys can see all these verses here, right? I didn't delete them. Okay. Exodus 40, uh, when Moses had finished the work, Genesis 2. God finished the work that he had been doing. Exodus 39, Moses blessed them. Genesis 2, and God blessed them. Exodus 40, to sanctify it, the tabernacle and all its furnishings. And God sanctified it in Genesis 2, 3. So as we're reading through Genesis, and as we're we're reading through Scripture, we got to remember that that there's a context, right? That Moses is speaking and writing to a particular audience that knows a lot of this language already. They know the tabernacle. They've been worshiping there. And he is um, using language from Genesis to kind of call to mind some of these themes. So what's this major theme that we're, we're developing so far? Is that the cosmos generally are God's house, is God's house, or this massive tabernacle that God dwells in. Even more specifically then, Let's move to just the, talking about the Garden of Eden um, itself. And what I think we can see from Genesis is that Genesis 1 and 2 is that the Garden of Eden is not just this, or that it's not just the cosmos that's this massive uh, t- tabernacle, but it's the Garden of Eden that is actually the first temple or special dwelling place of God, the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. Okay. Um, G.K. Beale, he's a scholar, spent a lot of time doing biblical theology. 
<clears throat> he has a book called, it's called The Temple and the Church's Mission. And he develops the, the theme of the temple throughout the Old Testament and goes into the New. And when he talks about the garden, he gives 14, I think I wrote down 13 in your list. <clears throat> he, he gives 14 reasons why we should view the garden as this first holy of holies. Um, and so let's walk through some of those reasons real quick. <clears throat> and again, the theme that we're driving toward is that we're um, created, created to dwell in the house of God. So the first reason that he gives is we're looking at Genesis 3.8 here. Genesis 3.8. The first reason that he gives is that God, in 3.8, he's described as walking back and forth or walking in the midst of the garden. And this is a phrase that's also used to describe God's presence in the tabernacle. In Leviticus 26, in Deuteronomy 23, and 2 Samuel 7. Look at Genesis 3.8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. So same word used to describe God's activity or God's presence in the tabernacle and the temple. Second reason, um, Adam was commanded to, what was Adam commanded to do in the garden? To tend it, to keep it, to cultivate it, right? Those words, to cultivate and to keep. What does that draw to mind in our minds? What kind of work is he doing? He's gardening, right? He's working the ground. He's cultivating the ground. What's interesting, though, is that these two words are also used to speak of um, the, the work that the priest was to do within the temple, that they were to work it and they were to keep it. The idea is there, there is to, to keep it pure and to protect the temple. Um, so same words used to describe Adam's work in the garden as the priestly work in the tabernacle and the temple. Um, here's a good quote here. Um, about this point uh, from Beale. He says, well, it is likely that a large part of Adam's task was to cultivate and to be a gardener, so very physical labor, as well as guarding the garden, that all of his activities are to be understood primarily as priestly activity is suggested not only from the exclusive use of the two words in context of worship elsewhere, but also because the garden was a sanctuary. If this is so, then the manual, the manual labor of gardening itself would be a priestly activity since it would be maintaining the upkeep and order of the sanctuary. So he's saying that just because he uses two words that are also used in worship uh, language elsewhere, uh, that doesn't mean that, that, this, that this is necessarily a priestly activity, but because the garden is a sanctuary, it's a place where God dwells with humans, it's a place where um, there's perfect peace um, amongst all creation, and Adam is to guard the sanctuary, that that by nature, is a religious, it's a priestly activity. Number three, the, uh, the garden <clears throat> is the place of the first guarding cherubim. Look at um, chapter three um, and Genesis uh, verse 24. So after they sin, God drives them out. So it says he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So a cherubim is an angel, and he's placed at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. And where else do cherubim appear in the Pentateuch or in the Old Testament? In the temple, right? So outside of the, outside of the Holy of Holies, right? So in the temple. <clears throat> and so there's religious language there as well. So the garden is the first place of the uh, guarding cherubim. 
Fourthly, the garden is the place of the first um, arboreal, or arboreal, I don't know how you say that word, lampstand, the tree of life. So there's a lampstand in the, there's a lampstand in the temple, or in the tabernacle, um, the menorah, and that's a picture of, that's probably a picture of the tree of life. And so we have the tree of life in Eden as that first lampstand. Number five, <clears throat> the garden is formative for garden imagery in Israel's temple. So if you look at 1 Kings 6 and 7 when the temple's being built, lots of garden imagery. So the garden here is probably formative to that idea. Sixth, sixth Eden is the, the first source of water <clears throat> in Genesis 2.10. So water flows out of Eden. And Ezekiel 47, um, the, the, the end times temple, um, the eschatological temple, pictures water flowing out from its center. <clears throat> Seven, the garden as the place of precious stones, like onyx and gold. And onyx and gold were both used to make furniture in Solomon's temple and used to decorate the priestly garments. So these, these, they use the same type of stones um, for religious uh, garments and for the temple, temple decoration. <clears throat> Eight, the garden <clears throat> was the place of the first mountain. The garden was the place of the first mountain. Now that's a kind of interesting one. <clears throat> Look back in chapter two, excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry. Sometimes in the morning I get a little groggy. Chapter two in Genesis. It talks about the waters. It talks about the waters. The name of the second river, let's see here. Um, verse 10. <clears throat> a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. <clears throat> it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx and stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So these rivers flow out of Eden. Now, which way does water travel? It travels down. So the picture here is that these, these four rivers are traveling down, traveling out of Eden, which kind of alludes to the fact that it's built on a hill. It's built on a mountain, right? So Eden is the place of the first mountain is where we get that from. And as we talk about um, the mountain of the Lord throughout Scripture, what is that a picture of? What is the mountain of the Lord? It's the place where man meets with God. The place where man meets with God. So the garden is the place of the first mountain. Ninth, the garden is the first place of wisdom. Here's a quote from his book in page 73. The ark of the, in the Holy of Holies, which contained the law that led to wisdom, echoes the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that also led to wisdom. Both touching the ark and the partaking of the tree's fruit resulted in death. Tenth, <clears throat> the garden as the first place with an eastern-facing entrance. So the tabernacle and the temple have an eastern-facing entrance. The garden also has an eastern-facing entrance. Look at verse, um, at chapter 3, verse 24 again. So he drove the man out, drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So there's an eastern-facing entrance, just like in the tabernacle. Um, Eleven, the garden as, a, as part of a tripartite sacred structure. There's a lot more explanation that needs to be done there. 
But basically the idea that there's the Garden of Eden, that's like, that would represent the Holy of Holies. There's outside of the garden, but still within Eden, that would, rec- that would uh, represent the holy place. And then beyond that, beyond the entrance, that's the outer, um, the outer courts, um, which follows the same pattern as used in the tabernacle and the temple later. So it's that three-part stru- sacred structure, the holy of holies, the holy place, the outer courts. Twelfth, Ezekiel's view in the garden. Um, Ezekiel views the garden as the first sanctuary in Ezekiel 28, uh, verses 13 to 14. Let's look there real quick. Ezekiel 28, 13 to 14. This is a prophecy against the king of Tyre. He says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and carving and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings on the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub, I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God, in the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. So all this language of the garden, um, garden being Uh, the garden of God, the sanctuary of God, and the mountain of God. Thirteenth, going back to Genesis, the ancient Near Eastern concept of temples in association with garden-like features. So that's just kind of understanding what the ancient Near Eastern mind would have been thinking about in terms of the temple, would have associated with with gardens. Um, Fourteenth, early Judaism also viewed the garden as the first sanctuary. Okay, that's a lot of reasons. That's a lot of things. None of those are like knockdown, drag out arguments, but he's building a case that we should view the temple, we should view the garden as the first temple where God's special dwelling place was with man. So we have God creating the cosmos, this big tabernacle. We have him putting man within the Garden of Eden, which is this smaller Holy of Holies um, place, the place of special presence of God, the special presence of God. And then in... Um, in the creation order itself, we're going to see that humanity's chief end is to commune with God. So let's go to that next section. Now, when we talk about the chief end of man, what comes to mind? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Okay, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, where do we get that idea to glorify God and to enjoy him forever That as our chief end? Where do we get that in Scripture? We hear it all the time, right? I often read about it in books, and I don't really always see a biblical reference next to it. But I've kind of wondered, like, where do we get that idea? I mean, who's going to argue with it, first of all, right? Well, no, our chief end isn't to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's silly. No, no one's going to argue with it. Of course that makes sense. It's a very Christian answer. But where do we get it from? And I think we get it from um, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to build this out, okay? So um, very briefly, as we see God creating in, um, uh, throughout the first six days, we see him going from 
So the, the, at first, the, the earth is formless and without void. And we see him moving from formless to form and from void to, to filling. So filling that void. So in that chart there, you can see there's two sides. Formless, a formless is the habitat, and the void is going to be filled with inhabitants. The formless is going to be the habitat. The void is going to be the inhabitants that fill that habitat. Days one, two, and three are about bringing form to the formless. And days four, five, and six are about filling up the void that is in the earth. And you guys don't, I don't think you guys have these in there, right? Okay, so let's cover day one. So day one, what's created? Light. Day one, light is created. And on day four, what does God create? The luminaries, right? The lampstands that light up the earth. So the day one, God creates the light. That corresponds with day four, the luminaries, right? Day two, um, what's created? Basically the sky and the waters, right? So God creates the sky and the waters. On day five, what's created are the fish and the fowl, the fish and the fowl, right? So the fish and birds. So day one corresponds with day four. Day two corresponds with day five. Day three... God creates land and vegetation, and on day six, God creates animals and humans, right? So each one of the six days corresponds with the other. Day one, light, luminaries. Day two, sky and water, fish and fowl. Day three, land, uh, land and vegetation. Day six, animals and humans. What, when you guys normally hear Genesis uh, 1 preached and taught, what is the like, what, what's the pinnacle of all of creation that you guys hear about? Humans. Humans are often thought of as the, the pinnacle of God's creation. And I think that's true. Look at verse 26. In some sense, that is true. Look at verse 26 in chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the li livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Created them. So why is mankind set apart from the rest of creation? Because we're made in the image of God. Right? We're made in the image of God. That makes us special. That makes us a little bit higher. That makes us much higher than dogs, than cats, definitely cats, than, than any other animal, any other creation in, 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 in all the world. Right? Kate's rolling her eyes because she loves cats. And I promised her that we would get a cat when we go to Vietnam. Um, so, so, so there's all of creation. Then there's man that's made in the image of God. That's a special relationship that man has with God. But I don't think that's it. I don't think that's it. I don't think that's the pinnacle yet of the creation week. Because if that's the pinnacle of the creation week, then man in and of himself is it. He's what all of creation is driving towards, but that he's not what all of creation is driving towards, right? What's, what comes next? What comes next? God's rest. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, have dominion. <clears throat> verse 29, he gave them every fruit to eat. To every, uh, verse 30, Every beast of the earth, to every uh, bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had said, and it was very good. 
and there's evening and there's morning, the sixth day, chapter two. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work and he, that, that he had done, <clears throat> and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. So the seventh day here is kind of set apart from the rest of the days in a couple different ways. You can kind of see it on the chart there. <clears throat> Every day has a corresponding day in, creation, in the creation week, except for the seventh day, so it's set apart in that way. And then it's also actually the only thing in Genesis, the only created thing in Genesis that is set apart as holy, that is sanctified. So God uses the sanctifying language for the seventh day, the Sabbath. Um, and so it sets it apart as, as different, as above, as, as totally set apart, holy um, in the created order. So mankind, in all, amongst all creatures, yes, is elevated. He's the pinnacle of all creatures. But it's not just mankind as mankind. It's mankind created for this seventh day rest that they are to, endu- that they are to enjoy with God in communion with him. Think about it. <clears throat> Adam's job was to cultivate, to garden, to, to work the ground, right? On the Sabbath, was he to do those things? No, he was to rest. And as he's resting, as one made in God's image, who's he resting with and in? In God. Adam was created for this end, for communion with him. Um, speaking, of the, speaking of this theme, he says, um, Morales in his book, he says, as the crown of creation, humanity is made in the image and likeness of God, the creator. No doubt this status entitles man, male and female, to rule and subdue the rest of creation, but the primary blessing of being created in God's image is in order to have fellowship with the creator. That's something that no other creature can, can do in a way that other creatures cannot. The rule and subdue command, along with the be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth blessing, should be directed to this chief end and highest goal Man is to gather all creation into the life-giving presence and praise of God. Elsewhere, he says, the image of God describes the uniqueness of human existence by virtue of which the, the individual can enter into a relationship with God. So, so man is made in God's image, but he's made in God's image for Sabbath day rest and worship in him. Um, so this is kind of where we start in Genesis. God creates a tabernacle. God creates a holy of holies, places his first priest, Adam, in the Garden of Eden to tend it for worship. Mankind is made for worship. All of creation is made for um, the glory of God. And so that's where we start. We start up here on God's holy mountain. And what we're going to see throughout Genesis real quick as as we go through is that there's going to be this kind of devolving theme as mankind moves from the life-giving presence of God toward death. Any questions so far? We just laid a pretty deep foundation, I hope, on Genesis, okay? You guys with me so far? Okay. Now, let's move now um, past Genesis 1 and 2 to Genesis 4, to Genesis 4. Oh, sorry. We got we to still talk about Adam and Eve sinning. 
Okay, so this is the state that Adam and Eve are created in. Now, Adam and Eve sin, and what do they do as immediately after they sin? They hide. They hide from the presence of God, right? So that's, that's the first movement away from the presence of God. Now, after they hide, God curses, and he gives a blessing, and he gives um, a promise that he's going to send the serpent crusher to, to defeat Satan and, um, and to redeem them. But then he, he, he moves them, right? He drives them. And where does he drive them? Are they allowed to stay in the Garden of Eden? No, they're driven out east from the garden. Look at, um, again, chapter 3, verse 24. So he drove out the man, man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now this movement east throughout Genesis is going to be kind of... Um, a symbol of moving away from the presence of God. We're going to see several things, several, several different situations where people are moving east and they're moving away from the presence of God. <clears throat> so Adam, he was the one that was able to meet with God on his mountain. He was the one that could relate to God in a way that no one else in history could. But then he's driven away from God's mountain out of his presence. And so who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Well, it's not Adam here, Right? The next story that we get to in Genesis 4 is the story of Cain and Abel, right? So they're, now they're outside of the Garden of Eden. They're outside of this gate. <clears throat> and what's the main problem with Cain and Abel? What do they what do? They, do? they give us, they offer a, a sacrifice, right? <clears throat> Cain's sacrifice was what? Vegetation, he was, a, he was a farmer, so it was things of the earth. Abel's sacrifice was what? Yeah, it was, it was meat, right? God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice. He was not pleased with Cain's. There's a lot, there's a lot that we're not told in the story of Cain and Abel, right? We're not told exactly um, how they knew to sacrifice. We're not told exactly where they're supposed to sacrifice, but if we're looking at the, the imagery of the, of the garden— and we're looking at the tabernacle, and we're comparing the two. There was a gate outside of the Garden of Eden, and there was a gate outside of the tabernacle that you would bring your sacrifices to. So maybe they're bringing their sacrifices to that gate <clears throat> in Eden. Um, we don't know if they were told exactly, like, if, if, if Cain's problem was that he um, offered vegetation instead of animals, but there was something there. I think that they should have known that Cain didn't know, or that Cain didn't follow um, instruction, and God did not accept his sacrifice. Um, so the, the focus, at the very least, of Genesis 4 is worship, and Cain's failure to bring an offering um, that's pleasing to the Lord leads him to being exiled out away from the presence of Yahweh. And he gets scared, doesn't he? He says, if I leave your presence, then I'm surely going to be what? Killed. So God marks him, protects him, but he sends them away from his presence. And as after he goes away from his presence, he establishes a city and he names it after one of his sons, right? And, and so this is a picture of him moving away from the presence of God and even um, making a name for himself. So after Cain and Abel, um, there's a little bit more of a, a move away from, quite a bit more of a way of uh, a move away from God's presence and from God's goodness. So the sons of God, now we're going to switch, go to Noah's, Noah and Noah's Ark. The sons of God um, take up the daughters of men, and I think that the sons of God is probably the, 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 some angels or demons. They take up the daughters of men, so they have some relations with them, 
<clears throat> and they violate the created creation um, order. And there's wickedness that fills the earth in verse in chapter six, right? And then what does God do to respond to the wickedness that's in chapter six? Well, he brings the flood, right? He brings the flood. <clears throat> so water throughout the Bible, I think, I think uh, Caleb's alluded to this in some of his, his um, lessons. Water signifies chaos and death and wrath, judgment, but primarily chaos. So he throws humanity, he throws all of the world into chaos, but he's going to save Noah and his family. So the movement right now, we have Adam and Eve in the garden. They move out east. Then Cain moves further out east. And now um, God throws the whole world into water, into chaos. But now he's going to rescue Noah and his family. And um, uh, he's going to bring them through uh, his ark. Now, <clears throat> there's a lot here that, I, that we want to cover, but I'm not going to be able to cover all of it. As God is saving Noah and his family through the ark, there's a lot of comparisons that have been made by scholars and um, commentators on Genesis between the ark and the temple, okay, the ark and the temple. When you think about the ark, we typically think of like a ship, but the ark was not shaped like a ship. It was probably shaped more like a big boxy type thing, okay? Um, the ark had, <clears throat> the ark and the temple are the only things, uh, and the tabernacle are the only things uh, that are described, uh, the only two buildings that are described in the Pentateuch. They're the only ones that have plans and measurements um, given by God. They both have a gate and a doorway. Um, there's three decks of the ark reflecting the three-deck cosmology of the ancient Near East. So um, a lot more we got, we got to go into there. Noah is kind of pictured as this new Adam who dwells with the creatures in peace within the ark. And so we have this picture of the ark, and, he, and it comes out of the waters. And where does it rest? Where does the ark rest after the flood? Mount Ararat. It's a mountain. Um, Mount Ararat is a region that's, that's um, at the headwaters of the Tigris Euphrates and the Euphrates, which is in the loca locale of Eden. So Mount Ararat is in the locale of Eden, and we have a new Adamic figure that's restarting on this mountain, okay? On the mountain, look at verse, uh, <clears throat> look at verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 20. What does Noah do? Noah, he built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered a burnt offering on the altar. So Noah, in his role, he, he uh, sets up an altar on the mountain to God. How does God respond to that um, offering? Is he makes a covenant with, uh, with Noah <clears throat> to never flood the earth again. Okay, so we have a kind of a restart on a mountain with a new Adam, a new family um, coming out of the ark, which would kind of bring pictures of a temple. But then what happens right after that? Is everything, is everything good after the, after the restart with Noah? No, right? In a couple of chapters, we get the story of the Tower of Babel. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. <clears throat> now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So they come together and they say, okay, now, let's make a, let's make a building that's top is going to reach where? 
the heavens. In other words, let's make our own mountain and let's try to ascend it to get into the divine realm, to get into the divine presence. God says, God says that we're designed for his glory. What are they trying to do? They're trying to make a name for who? For themselves. God says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. They say, let's stay in one place, lest we be scattered. <clears throat> so here, it's as if these, these men that are coming together to build this, this tower are saying, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? And they're saying, we will. We'll ascend the mountain of the Lord. But they're trying to do it in their own way, violating the created and, or the creature and the creator distinction, right? They're trying, to, they're trying to violate the way that God created them um, and trying to make, it, make things in their, trying to build this building in their way um, for their own glory. So who shall ascend the mountain of, mountain of the Lord? It's as if they're saying, we will, we will, but God says, no, you will not. And what does God do? He sends them out. He exiles them again. <clears throat> he sends them out from the Tower of Babel. Um, in some ways, this is kind of the picture of the first Babylonian exile, isn't it? Man trying to worship, or man trying to make a name for themselves, false worship, God drives them out from there and, and takes them out into more and more chaos. So now you have all of humanity just roaming and wandering the earth away from the presence of God in total chaos, speaking different languages. And then the question becomes, what is, how, what is God going to do to make a name for himself, to, to make a way for people to dwell in his presence once again? <clears throat> so there's another chart there that kind of helps us see um, a kind, of, kind of some of these comparisons here. Um, as we move down the mountain from the summit to the midsection, to the base, to the chaos waters, <clears throat> and so we see these big movements uh, um, throughout Genesis, 12, uh, Genesis 2 to 11. Adam and Eve in the garden, they, they're exiled out of the garden. Cain and Abel at the gate, Cain, is, Cain kill, kills Abel, Cain is exiled away from the gate further east. Cain, <clears throat> or sorry, Noah, um, Noah's period, the angels, of, uh, the angels and the daughters of men, <clears throat> God floods the earth. Noah, Noah and his family on the mountain, um, and then they move out, and then the Tower of Babel, and they move out further exiled um, into more and more chaos. And so we have the humanity so far is being driven further and further away from the presence of God. <clears throat> so now, from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50, we have stories about the patriarchs of Israel, the patriarchs of Israel, <clears throat> starting with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Um, and then we have the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis. Let's go to Genesis 12. <clears throat> Genesis 12, this is the, God's first interaction with Abram, where he initiates this covenant with him. Genesis 12, verse 1. <clears throat> now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you, of a, I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So before Abraham in the Tower of Babel situation, they wanted to make a name for themselves. God says to Abram that he's going to make a great name for him. At the Tower of Babel, they were driven away from God's presence, and God is going to give Abraham a land where he's going to dwell with his people. 
the nations were exiled, and God is going to use Abraham to bless the nations and bring them back out of exile. And that's the picture that we have here. He's setting up the bringing back out of exile back into the, the presence of God. But there's a lot more that needs to happen um, before, this, before this can happen. Um, there's a couple other stories in here that are very interesting. Um, there's a story between uh, Abraham and, or Abram and Lot and their herdsmen. Where does, so at, uh, Abram and Lot, they have some conflict between their herdsmen. Abram says, hey, look at Canaan. Look at all the land that God's given me. And you pick for yourself where you want to live with your family. And what does Lot pick? Where does Lot decide to live? In Sodom. So he looks at Canaan, which represents God's, God's place with his people. And he says, I'm actually going to pick the place right outside of Canaan. To the east, to Sodom. And, and Sodom is a place that looks like it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful garden. It compares it to the Garden of Eden, even within Genesis. So he goes there. And that's almost as to say that, God, that Lot looks at the, at the presence of God, the will of God, and he says, no, I'm going to move away from that. He, works, he moves east. Um, Jacob's vision, this is a couple generations later, Jacob's vision, he has a vision of a ladder leading to heaven. Um, and this is what, uh, yeah, you know what? I'm going to skip that part. So Jacob has a vision of a ladder, and there's a, there's a mountain analogy there as well. But basically what we want to see throughout Genesis, and I'm sorry for having to skip through some things here. Basically what we want to see from throughout Genesis is that there's, it starts in the mountain with Adam and Eve. It moves further and further away. Genesis starts with life, the life-giving presence of God. And when it ends, it ends down in Egypt. And I want you just to look at the last verse of Genesis before we get into Exodus. The last verse of Genesis So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So thematically, chronologically, geographically, we see the, we see, we, we see the history of Genesis work from the Garden of Eden out to Egypt. We see, the garden, we see life move towards death. We see the presence of God move to more and more chaos and death as well. And so um, the story of Genesis is the story of man leaving the presence of God, and then Exodus is going to be a story of God starting to create a way for man to make his way back into dwelling with him um, at Mount Sinai. Um, And then Leviticus is going to give us even more of that picture of how to be, um, how to dwell in God's presence again. Okay, we covered a lot there. I'm sorry, I felt like that that was rough because there's so much that we're trying to cover there, and I know I didn't cover all of it um, adequately. Are there any questions that we have there from Genesis? Okay, let's go ahead and pray. If you guys have questions, you can come out to me afterwards. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for your word, and we thank you that, um, we thank you that your word is powerful, and even as I'm sitting up here, and I know that I did not do your word justice this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would work through my weakness, and that you would allow us to, to come to a clear picture of what you're doing throughout history to redeem humanity to yourself. We thank you that you made us in your image to be in relationship with you. And we thank you that you have made us 
to enjoy communion with you and that we have that in Christ who did ascend the mountain, uh, who did ascend your mountain and make a way for us to dwell with you forever. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that you would continue to help us to have a richer view of, of your scriptures and how the story develops. And Lord, I pray that you'd be honored in our worship service this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.